Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. If you're a Times reader, you'll know him well. Danny Finkelstein, or Lord Finkelstein as he's properly known, has spent more than two decades explaining the political world through the thousands of columns and articles he's written for the paper. But there's one story he's never told before. It's a story that takes us from Holland to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp to London. Remember the story that Ronald Reagan was going to go and visit Belsen. I went downstairs to tell my mum she was washing up I stood behind her, I said, Mum, Ronald Reagan's going to Belsen, and she responded, so what I've been. The survivors carry a memory beyond anything that we can comprehend. We can and must pledge never again. As Danny pieced together his own history, he came to understand how his life has been shaped by his family's past. They lost absolutely everything. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. The World War II story of Danny Finkelstein's family. My name is Daniel Finkelstein. I'm a columnist on The Times. I have been the paper's executive editor. And now I write weekly on political topics. Take us back to a particular afternoon in 2012 when you were preparing for a big party. Yes, it was my 50th birthday. So we live in the suburbs of, of London in Pinner. We got a tent. Um, big marquee so that everyone who was going to be there could fit into our otherwise too small house. My wife organised for a cake to be made, a marzipan representation of me in characteristic pose sitting on a sofa watching television and drinking a can of Diet Coke. <laughs> and we had some food from somebody who provided catering in Pinner. It was as posh an event as I think we've ever held. <laughs> and we had around, as you would do on your 50th birthday, all of our friends. The group my wife calls them everyone. Most of them, I suppose, Jewish. Certainly lots of them only been in families who'd been there a couple of generations. And I, I thought that it was the perfect audience for what I had to say. And I said that 
We take for granted almost that we live in tranquil suburb, that we have the rule of law and we uh, have a political democracy and we have the freedom to do what we want. And what had happened to my parents had not happened to us, that by the time they were my age, 50 years old, they'd been starved and imprisoned. They'd been exiled from their country. They'd lost their nationality. They'd been forced to start again in a different language, in a different place. And we were not scared when someone knocked on the door uh, late at night, we probably thought it was Amazon. We didn't think that somebody was coming to arrest us. Therefore, my toast, as well as being to my friends and to my family, was to the local dry cleaner and the tube station and Brent Cross shopping centre <sighs> and the, the Sunrise Cafe in North Harrow, all the things that we regard as routine in our life, but my parents came to see as not routine. And the reason why that is important to me is because 10 years ago, that seemed a very natural assumption to make. But if I was doing that event again, I'm not sure I'd make the same speech. While all those things are probably still how I'll live and how my children will live, it's no longer beyond question the things that we take for granted, that we take for granted the rule of law, that we take for granted that most people will want a political democracy, that most people support a kind of welfare state redistributing it rather than doing it by pillage. So do I think this is about to happen? What happened to my parents is about to happen to me and my children? No, but could it? Yes, it definitely could. And I suppose thinking back on that event was really the spark that set alight my sort of ambition to tell my parents' story, something I'd known I had to do to leave to my children. And if that event becomes the catalyst for writing this book, where does this book actually start? I've always known that my family had an extraordinary story. And when I was in my teens, early teens, we used to go to the lowlands of Scotland. My grandmother was with us. She was always dressed, my grandmother, for reasons that I now understand completely, but didn't at the time, in a kind of smart cloth coat and gloves. And she would wear this even going out to the Express Dairy in, in Hendon Central, yeah. you know, a hat. Uh, and, um, she sounds very elegant. She was very elegant. Uh, and we used to go for these walks and... On the walk, she would tell me quite amusing stories of her battling against kind of witless Soviet bureaucrats. Somebody rode a horse into their accommodation and she drove them out with their invective. She threatened somebody with a bread weight because he refused to open the store and give my father some bread. Stories that I kind of realised were true. But I also appreciated there almost certainly was more to it than that. Yeah. That the stories were a bit darker and uh, more complicated. And I always remember one year coming on my grandmother... Her birthday was in December and she had on her bedside table a big bunch of roses. And I said, you know, Granny, where did you, who sent you the roses? And she said, the president of Poland sent me the roses. And I oh, thought, wow. Well, that's a pretty interesting answer. Why was your grandmother getting roses from the president of Poland? Uh, well, when my grandfather, Dolu, was a city councillor in Lvov, the mayor was a man called Stanislav Ostrovsky. And Ostrovsky became the president after the war of the Polish government in exile. And so when my grandmother said she'd received the roses from the president of Poland, that's who it was from, because he'd been a champion of both my grandfather and the family all the way through the war years. So I knew even from that young age that there was an extraordinary story on my father's side and also on my mother's side. So my mother, uh, people just didn't speak about the Holocaust for 
decades after the Second World War, much occasionally they, they'd be at a dinner party my parents and they'd kind of stumble across the topic. Yeah. And my mother would say she'd been in Belson and there'd be like a silence around the table and then somebody would ask whether somebody else wanted some more dessert and the conversation would go on. Wow. But she did talk to us about it. And then she started to give talks in when I was in my late teens. And I remember her saying to me, do you think that the children will be interested in the fact that I saw Anne Frank in Belson? You know, she genuinely didn't know with anyone be interested in that and I, I even <laughs> even in the years before I had any journalistic ambition I kind of realized they probably would be interested in it so I knew that there was this story and I also felt within the family that somehow I'd be the one that would be would write it so there was first of all a year reading around the topic trying to understand what all these big terms meant Belson, the Gulag, Sobibor, what were they? The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, what was that? Uh, how did they affect the lives of my uh, parents? Then about 18 months going through every document that we had. And then about 18 months for the writing. But it's really been a project of mine ever since my teens, I guess. And Danny, tell us more about looking through the family documents. I mean, how did you come to have so many of them? And what did you find? Yeah, so for about 18 months, I spent in my study with a lot of the papers that I'd been given when my parents died. So it was decided among the three siblings that I would take the papers. And I sat down. And the first thing I did was I went through them all very quickly. And then I made an interesting discovery. I discovered that my grandfather was five foot seven, and my grandmother six foot. And this discovery was important, not because of those facts, so they're quite interesting, but because I realised that in every form or piece of paper in these boxes or suitcases, there was a piece of information on every line that was of value to telling their story. So I realised in that moment that although I'd been rushing through them in a couple of weeks, I was going to have to go back to the beginning, sit down and spend all day, every day, going through every single piece of paper, some of which required translation. So it was kind of a bit arduous. I had to send them off. And so that took took a long time. Um, and I had the most amazing things. So going through a shoebox, I came across this Pan Am flight. You know, you used to have those little envelope things folded. And inside the envelope, I found this little piece of paper and realized it was the piece of paper my grandmother had been given saying that her and my mother and my mother's sister were to be sent to Belson. Um, and then the next piece of paper was the coupons for the dining room on the cruise ship that took them from the concentration camp to New York. Um, I found another piece of paper. I, I looked at it and it said um, omelette. I could work out the word was omelette and I couldn't understand what o it was. Omelet, Gradually, I worked out that this piece of paper was my grandmother's list of random recipes. And I appreciated over time that what this was was my grandmother writing down food that she wasn't able to eat in Belson. So all of these things were in a kind of higgledy-piggledy, and you'd turn wow. one document, and the next document would be something completely different. You know, my mother's diaries from in the years just before she got married, which were completely tranquil things about going to the cinema, would be muddled in with a work pass for Vesterbork Transit Camp. And um, I sorted through all those, went through line by line, and it was an extraordinary experience. Danny, tell us a bit about some of the stories that you've managed to capture in this book. I mean, just starting starting with your mother, you know, who, as you say, had the, the sort of background that could stop a dinner party in its tracks. You know, tell us a bit about her life before Belson. 
If I may, I'm going to start even before my mother was born. My grandfather, Alfred Weiner, came back from the war in 1918 and he realised immediately that the kind of optimism for Jews that they would become part of uh, integrated Germany uh, had a shadow over it. And mm. so in 1919, he publishes a tract arguing that unless the, the sort of good and decent Germans do something, people will talk to his descendants of, uh, of bestial murder. And he predicts this in 1919 and, of course, and spends the rest of his life trying to prevent that from happening and obviously fails to do so. That's um, extraordinarily but he, prophetic. He was very prophetic. And he, he basically spent the 20s travelling all over Germany, giving speeches in big rallies, you know, disputing libelous claims against the Jews, collecting everything that Nazis said. Nazi newspapers, Nazi leaflets, records of what their uniforms looked like, pictures of who their leading proponents were. And he collects all that, and it's a sort of secret archive. What happens is in, in 1933, the Nazis take over anyway. He is called to a meeting with Goering. On the surface of it, the meeting is genial. Underneath it, what Goering is actually saying is, I know you've got the secret archive and you have to destroy it. And they try to avoid destroying it, but eventually he has to leave the country. So um, my mother was born in June 1933, mm. so about six months after Adolf Hitler took power. Uh, her father's already moving to Holland right. uh, to establish their new home and to begin his work again. The story of my mother's childhood is living in this house in Amsterdam. She's living a perfectly ordinary life in many ways, an um, ordinary Dutch childhood. And in the same house is the world's biggest collection of Nazi material. So my mother has this kind of ordinary childhood against this extraordinary backdrop. Uh, well, people will have to, to read to know more about it. But he essentially what happens in the end is that he, he goes to London with this library and opens it up on the day that war starts in order to help the British war effort. But because everyone thought that Holland would remain neutral, my mother is, uh, stays in Holland and they're trapped there. So how does your mother go from having a, a, an ordinary life in, in Holland where she thinks she's protected to suddenly being in a camp? Well, in, in May 1940, the Nazis invade Holland. And for the first period, life does continue uh, relatively unchanged. But gradually, they're able to do less and less. They can't use the swimming pools. They can't play tennis. They can't go to the parks. The family can't shop in the market. They're not allowed to have a bicycle. They can't have a car. My grandfather's not in the country, so they're cut off. They don't have any money. Uh, the Nazis remove lots of the stuff they have in the house, anything that uh, could be stolen effectively was. And that persists for the sort of latter two years mm. until in June 1943, the family's arrested. It was a big raid on that day, 20th of June 1943, very hot Sunday, and the families are taken to collection points and then taken to Westerbork, a transit camp. And from there, they usually went to Auschwitz or Sobibor, and my great-aunt dies in Sobibor. That was probably one of the toughest things in doing the book. I had not really understood the experience of Sobibor. Everyone knows about Auschwitz because people survived Auschwitz. Yeah. Sobibor basically got off the train and it was like a factory process and they killed everyone. But my mother doesn't go to Auschwitz or to Sobibor because they have a Paraguayan passport. And now tell me about this. Yeah, well, so, um, I mean, are, are there it, any Paraguayan links in the family? No. 
they're not Paraguay. So this document was purchased from the Paraguayan consul who lived in Bern in Switzerland. Mm. And a group of Polish diplomats that led by a man called Alexander Vadosh worked out that they could give these to Jews and it might give them some exchange value. And just explain that. Why would a Paraguayan passport be because a Paraguay form of immunity? Oh. So Himmler had realised relatively earlier on that the Nazis might not win the war and was after that looking for leverage in mm. lots of different ways. And one of the leverages that he persuaded other German authorities, including Hitler, uh, was that if he could get Jews who had some sort of exchange value, who could be exchanged for money, for equipment, for Germans who were living in Allied-occupied countries, he should hold those Jews and not kill them. And so if you had a document that meant that you had this value, even though the Nazis knew it was false, mm. and so did the Paraguayans, and so did the Americans, and so did the British. Everyone knew this document was false, and obviously my mother had no Paraguayan connections whatsoever. Despite that, it had value. This document was enough, ultimately, to make my mother one of only 136 people who were exchanged as a result of this scheme. The Paraguayan passports were a convenient lie. The idea had been dreamt up by a group of Polish diplomats in Switzerland who paid the man who was Paraguay's honorary consul a fee for signing passports in the name of Jews who needed to be rescued. Everyone knew that these passports were fake, but they stopped Jews from being killed because you couldn't kill someone who on paper was the citizen of a country that had long and well-established relations with Germany. It came so late in the war that it wasn't possible to do it for anyone else. Yeah. It definitely saved their life because the people who stayed behind in Belsen, many of those people were among those people who were found only about six weeks later by the Allied forces as they arrived and found skeletons and starvation, basically. Yeah. And Danny, how do you know about all of this? My aunt kept a diary. Um, so my mother was 10. She, my aunt was 16. She had a little diary that she'd won in a competition. She took it with her when they got arrested. And she had a little pencil, increasingly blunt pencil, and she filled in a little line every day. So it'll have things wow. like um, no bread today or so-and-so's been arrested. The, the biggest single public thing that she had in it was seeing Anne and Margot Frank through the wires. That, uh, tell me about that. You mentioned that your mother would throw into conversation that she she knew Anne Frank. Tell, tell us about that relationship. Yeah. So my, my um, I've always thought of my mother as Dutch. My mother was, after all, brought up in Holland. She was there from uh, being a baby. But when you know about her story, you realise my mother was German. Mm. She just lived in Holland. They were refugees and there was a German-Jewish refugee community. My grandparents were part of that, and also part of that were Anne and Margot Frank. Margot Frank was Anne's older sister. She was 16 when she went into hiding, and like Anne, she died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. My mother always used to say, you know, and my aunt as well, who knew Anne Frank a bit better because she was a bit older, and Anne Frank was older than my mother, four years older, that she was just a normal kid. But Margot, they were very impressed by. My aunt said, 
we all held in her in awe. And that's not the only time I've read that. And in fact, actually, if you read Anne Frank's diaries, she was also in or a bit resentful of Margot and her clear intelligence. So, um, you know, obviously we lost Margot. We have Anne Frank's diary, but but Margot also had a diary and that never, never, found. Uh, never found. And that we have, we've lost something there, I would think. Coming up, Danny's mother had an extraordinary journey to London. But what about his father? That's in just a moment. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. So you've got this extraordinary story on your mother's side. Yes. In Belson. What's happened to your father? My, mo- my mother always says, by the way, she was ever saying, um, it's not a competition. But my father did suffer what is in many ways comparable, though I'm not quantifying that because my mother would not want me to. So my father was born in a city that we now know as Lviv. Mm. But when my father was born there, it was Lviv in Poland. And there was a large Jewish population in this city, about a quarter to a third of the citizens were Jewish. And my family had lived there for hundreds of years. And by the point of my father's birth, his father had become extremely prosperous, Dolu, my, my grandfather. His nickname was the Iron King. My grandfather had built the iron and steel business. He was a philanthropist, he was a leading entrepreneur, and he was also a city councillor. So a sort of prominent part of the city. And when the Soviets take over, their decision is that they're going to destroy the elite of Poland. So they arrested tens of thousands of people. One of those was my grandfather. My grandfather loses, and my family, my father lost everything, all their property, their factories, they lost absolutely everything. And my grandfather is then sent to the gulag. My grandmother doesn't know what's happened to him, goes out to the sort of local attorneys to discover where, where is my grandfather gone, and is told, don't worry, we're just interviewing him, come back in four days. After three days, they all get arrested as well, the families. And, um, what they did was hundreds of thousands of people ended up being deported to the Soviet interior. Partly this was about destroying the political elite of Poland, and partly it was about populating. It was a kind of, I, I joke that it was sort of Soviet leveling up. They were trying to populate the interior of the Soviet Union. So after weeks of traveling in appalling circumstances, they end up on this small farm ranch, which my grandmother referred to later as the island of hunger and death. And they have no food and they have nowhere to live uh, they end up building a shack out of cow dung and they live through the winter and another moment where i kind of understand the difference between my my own experience and theirs my father said it was below freezing inside 
So um, this would undoubtedly have resulted in their death, except for this, Hitler invades the Soviet Union. And because Hitler invades the Soviet Union, they get uh, released. So how does your father, who's just managed to escape, how does he meet your mother, who is on the other side of Europe? Yes, so in 1947, both my parents came here from different places. My mother, by that point, was in New York. Uh, my grandfather spends the war helping the American intelligence services in New York, and my mother and her sisters are able to go there. My father, when they leave the Soviet farm, they then are allowed to join the Polish Resettlement Corps and come to Britain in 1947. So in 1947, they both arrived here. They didn't meet each other for another nine years, actually. And they met in West London Synagogue in 1956 at some youth club. My mother was the secretary and my father was going for the first time. And then in the most sort of obvious way, really, they did live happily ever after. It's very important, I think, this. They had a an extraordinary adventure in their life, but they were very determined not to be defined by it. Um, mm. They were objectively victims uh, but they didn't want to live like that. My father never went back to Lviv, even though he could after the really? Berlin Just Waterfall. My mother want never wanted again. to go to Auschwitz or, uh, you know, visit Belsen, and she didn't want us to either. But she was still willing to talk about it. They were very open, but they didn't want to be defined by it. My mother, my mother said at one point, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher and a mother and a wife, and only then a survivor. And my parents, I think, took it for granted that they had been involved in something that was quite similar. And that's had a big impact on my political outlook without any doubt, and my, and, uh, my siblings, I'm sure, too. In what uh, way? They, they were, well, the way I put it in the book, the Soviets arrested people who owned shops but happened to be Jews, and the Nazis arrested Jews who happened to be shopkeepers. <laughs> um, you know, they both were out to destroy an elite that they defined my 10-year-old mother and my 10-year-old father as being part of. Yeah. These great totalitarian ideas of how to remake the world start by arresting a 10-year-old child and then sticking them on a train. That politics seems to me not dissimilar, even if it had different manifestations. And so we were always brought up to have a kind of gentle, proportionate, liberal, I suppose, small-c conservative outlook. And they process their experiences in similar ways. And, you know, that, that is understandable. Yeah. And what sort of a life did your parents build here? My parents moved to Hendon when they got married and they never left. My grandmother lived about 300 yards away from us. My father became a, an engineering professor and he became an engineer because he could see when they were in the farm in Siberia, that they didn't have any heat, that it was the sort of basics of life that made the difference between survival and death. And he became interested in the mechanics of life, I suppose. And my mother became a maths teacher. So both of them were quite uh, mathematical. You know, I remember we would sit at table having discussions about how many cans of drink you could fit into a fridge of a certain cubic <laughs> volume. Those were the kind of family conversations. In my father's case, definitely stimulated by that experience in Siberia. My mother's case, I think it was just innate, actually. And Danny, right at the start, you told us that one of the reasons you had to write this book now was because of a, a sense of fear about how things are changing. 
what are you hoping that people who read this book will find in it? How are you hoping that it might change things? I'm hoping that people's reactions will be a number of things. First of all, I think I hope they'll find it a compelling human story, one that's ultimately one of triumph. But I do think the message from it is obvious that people always have that thing of um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And my grandfather's insight was that's not true. Before there are sticks and stones, there are always words and ideas really matter. I hope people reading this book will think, well, the one thing we should be sure about is we'll not let that happen again. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times columnist Danny Finkelstein. Danny's book, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, a family memoir of miraculous survival, is out on the 8th of June. You can order it now at the new Times Bookshop, timesbookshop.co.uk. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.